Hello everybody and welcome to Ghost Stories of Canada. My name is Zach and I'll be your host this summer as we delve into folklore from coast to coast to coast. This is the summer 2019 podcast of Discover the Past Ghostly Walks based out of Victoria, British Columbia. My goal is to collect and relay the best ghost stories I can find from each province and territory. This means I'll be searching through books, web pages, and videos, as well as reaching out to other tour companies across the country to gather stories. You can expect a new episode to be released every Monday and Thursday starting July 1st and ending mid-August. Welcome to Episode 6, Ontario. We've got another full-length episode for you today. You would expect a place like Ontario, with its long history and immense population, to have more than its fair share of ghost stories. The province doesn't disappoint. I had to stop myself from writing up more stories so as to ensure the episode doesn't drag on for hours on end. Rest assured, we could do a dozen episodes on Ontario alone, but if you are curious to learn more and have already gotten hold of the books we're citing today, you'll be pleased to find that there is a multitude of ghost walks you can take all over the province with expert storytellers and very fine hosts. Naturally, there is a lot to unpack over the course of the ten stories on this episode, so there is no way to ease you into it. We're jumping straight into a haunted house with a bit of a nasty side. Then we'll take you out on the waters of Lake Ontario before diving into some unique treats for today. had found her dream house. It was a cute old home built in 1905 on Archibald Street South in Fort William, what we know now as Thunder Bay. Rose, a young woman, was delighted by the find and moved into the home in 1986 by herself. It was like living out of a picture book, and she adored every corner of the house with one exception, the back bedroom. It was always freezing back there, even in the summer with the blinds wide open to let in the heat. Rose was uncomfortable there, so she mostly stayed out of the room, reserving its use to hosting guests overnight. As Rose spent more and more time in that house, though, fewer and fewer guests elected to stay over. Anyone who stayed there and slept in that back bedroom would always have nightmares about a sinister shadow figure lurking in their room. The word demon was even tossed around, for whatever that means to you. Everything I know about places like this tells me that if humans can sense unpleasant spirits in a home, you can bet your boots that animals will as well. This is a strange case where you'd be walking home in your bare feet, however, as cats and dogs seemed to very much enjoy being in that room. They were always fascinated by something there. Dogs would often sit, staring into the empty closet for hours on end. The presence would seem to have become more comfortable with Rose living there, for she began to frequently hear footsteps walking on the floor above her and the sound of furniture being moved around. Despite herself being the only person in the house, Rose didn't mind this so much. When you buy an old heritage home, you've got to take the good with the bad. When she married, her husband moved into the place with her, but he didn't share her fondness for the old house on Archibald Street. He found it rather eerie and cold, and would often have nightmares about that shadow person moving about the room where he was sleeping. The couple decided to hire a medium to come in and cleanse the property, which the medium did, but they were left with an ominous warning. There were things there in that house that could hurt them, and they would be better off leaving. If they were to stay, at least, the medium implored, don't have any children in the home. The medium was not aware that Rose was already pregnant. 
This last statement by the medium seemed to explain Rose's husband's recurring dreams that a shadowy demon figure would take the child's life before it was born. Sure enough, as they continued living there, Rose lost the baby shortly thereafter. This was likely the final straw for the couple who had been living in increasing anxiety and fear. The house that Rose had so loved when she first moved in was no longer its pretty, innocent self after four years of occupancy. They decided to move out in 1990, but just before they left, they invited a team of investigators to go through the house and see what could be found. After all, getting any semblance of an answer would help them move on from the old place. The investigators confirmed all of their experiences. There were unexplained temperature drops in the back room, and they definitely detected some kind of a presence in there. What's more was they were very intrigued by the closet, the one that dogs would always stare at. They poked their heads in and moved around what little shelving there was to be found. It was through this that they made a quirky little discovery. There, built into the wall of the closet, was a Ouija board. Rose and her husband moved out that very day. It was a strange coincidence, nothing more. Do you ever find that that is the response you get when you share a story with a friend or family member? Perhaps you experienced something that left you questioning the reality of what happened. You're trying simultaneously to dismiss and to acknowledge the possibility that you've encountered some kind of paranormal being. For example, you might often be locking up an office building which you know to be haunted. Whenever you leave the building, everything is normal, except when you lock up after 11pm, when you're the last person out of the building. That's when you're in the lobby, strapping lights onto your bike, and right behind you the elevator door opens. It's empty. You didn't push the button. There is no sensor. No one is in the building. It's just you and that darn empty elevator which only opens when you're leaving late into the night and about to set off in the dark streets. Not that this ever happens to me, of course. It's just a strange coincidence, someone says, when you tell them about what you've been experiencing. You might feel the need to tell someone with the idea that when they reaffirm what you've been going through, you won't feel crazy or like you're imagining things. But a strange coincidence? Hearing that doesn't help you feel any better. It sure didn't help a group of boaters off the coast of Etobicoke in August of 1910. The moon that night was so bright that the waters around were clear and visible, as if in a mild daylight. Therefore, it was with ease that all three small pleasure cruisers found shelter for the night at the mouth of Etobicoke Creek, where the area you might know as Mary Curtis Park meets Lake Ontario. All the boaters had retired to bed fairly early that night, so they were all fast asleep when about 1.30am they were all awoken by four blasts of a ship's whistle. Poking their heads above deck, they could see a steamer bathed in the moonlight heading at half speed about a quarter mile offshore. She didn't look like any known steamer of the area, though that didn't keep some of the observers from trying to guess her identity. The whistle, while sounding somewhat faint, sounded its four blasts over and over again. Obviously, there was some level of emergency aboard that ship, so four of the men from the pleasure cruisers hopped into a dinghy and began rowing out to meet the steamer with the intention of helping in any way they could. What happened next will not surprise you if you remember back to the Newfoundland and PEI episodes. As the quartet of responders got closer, the steamer disappeared into the night air leaving the ripples and foam in the water where her bow had been cutting through. All told, eleven people had seen the steamer that night, and all gave the same account of events and the exact same description of her appearance, a combination of metal boat with wooden paneling. The four men who had rowed out to meet her gave especially clear descriptions, as they had gotten closer to the ship than any of the others, 
although they had nothing to show for it. When they had arrived at the spot where the steamer had been, they made a peculiar discovery. Floating in the water were simply pieces of driftwood and a few old pieces of shipwreckage, wooden panels of a steamer. A very strange coincidence, indeed. The hub of Canada, if we had to pick one, would probably be Ontario. Our most populous province hosts both our national capital and our largest city. It's not surprising that you'll find many wonderful walking tour companies that have set up shop around the Great Lakes, and three of these companies were very kind to offer up some of their stories for me to share with you on this episode. The first of these is from the Ghost Walks in Hamilton and involves a darker side to the city's history. Isaac Buchanan had no idea what his land was about to become when he sold it in 1876. Sure, he knew that workers were to start construction of the Hamilton Insane Asylum on the property shortly thereafter, but there was no way to tell exactly the sort of things that would unfold inside its walls. The building that would come to be known as Century Manor was especially ominous. Its confines were reserved for the worst of the worst. Insane asylums are known historically for their overcrowding, their poor conditions, their abuse, and their permanency. Once you were in, it was very unlikely you would ever be let out again. Despite their insidious associations, however, many asylums had very honest and well-meaning roots. With the Hamilton Insane Asylum, the land was carefully chosen with the patient's well-being in mind. The doctors felt that the hillside of the old Buchanan property had a view that would naturally be calming for those with mental disease. Once built, the asylum held many different activities to keep the patients at ease. Arts and crafts, cards, games, knitting, even a bowling green, tennis court, and some ice rinks. According to McMaster University's website, the asylum also had a farm with cattle, chickens, pigs, fruits, and vegetables and also a bakery, a butcher shop, a milk processing house, a tailor's shop, an upholstery shop, a fire hall, and a number of vehicles, so you can see the whole business was entirely self-sufficient. The design of the asylum was also meant to treat its patients well. Furniture was built to be too heavy to pick up and throw around, and if a patient got pregnant, they were able to have their baby there in the operating room and nurse it for six weeks before handing it off to a family member to raise. I've painted a fairly rosy picture for you, but I've also only showed you one side of the coin. Every now and then, a shrill shriek from the asylum's whistle would warn the city to lock their doors and bring in their children. A patient had escaped. Having the asylum so close to town meant that those who were naturally curious about the goings-on had only to wander over to the park beside it to satisfy their interests. For Hamiltonians in the late 1800s, this was free entertainment. How droll it was to watch the poor souls wandering about the grounds muttering to themselves. Occasionally, the onlookers would venture up to the patients and tease them, or try to confuse them, even throw things at them. Orderlies and nurses would intervene in the more extreme cases, but watching the mentally ill remained a favorite pastime for many citizens of Hamilton. For the patients themselves, treatment was often rather rough. If they weren't simply given alcohol or heated morphine to temporarily sedate them, more hands-on tactics were employed, a famous one being the Utica crib. This was essentially a reclining coffin lined with straw to contain the tormented patient trapped inside, 
although it wasn't very effective in long-term mental health improvement. Along that line were methods like electroshock therapy and surgical lobotomies. Although they left their victims in a zombie-like passive state, the lobotomies certainly were effective in permanently sedating very hyperactive and troubled patients, that is, if the procedure didn't kill them. Once the Hamilton Insane Asylum shut its doors for good in the 1950s, very little was put in its place. It was a museum for a little while, but has been almost entirely torn down since. The only building left is Century Manor, that house for the worst of the worst, which just stood empty. Of course, as you would imagine, a place like this is to be full of ghosts. However, as it's simply been empty all these years, stories are very hard to come by. One excellent story that is fairly well known is from a 1970s security guard, and is told by the Ghost Walks of Hamilton. The security guard, Jeff, was making his regular rounds on the night shift, mainly to chase trespassers away from the empty halls of Century Manor. He descended to the tunnels beneath the house to do a quick sweep. Whenever he did find folks who had broken into the old place, it was often down in the tunnels. I'm not sure why, but there's something about tunnels that seems to attract adventure seekers and ghost hunters. Perhaps it's places like the Paris Catacombs or the Seattle Underground that excites the imaginations of tourists and locals alike. I know I often get asked about the tunnels beneath the streets of Victoria while I'm giving tours, despite the fact that Victoria doesn't have any tunnels. Everyone is always very disappointed to hear about the lack of tunnels, but hey, we're a company of historians, and we tell stories, not spread rumors. Anywho, Jeff was down in his own tunnels beneath Fennel Avenue, looking through empty rooms and shining his flashlight along the old walls. It was eerie down there, for sure, and his footsteps echoed mightily off the walls and down the corridors. It was while he was down there that he began to hear muffled voices coming from some distance around the corner. He shone his light down the pathway to reveal a solitary wooden door with a brass handle. The voices seemed to be coming from the room behind it. Jeff crept up to it and put his ear up against the wood. There were definitely two different voices sounding, both women's, but he couldn't quite make out any words they were saying. Trespassers, thought Jeff. Probably girls who had snuck into the tunnel to walk around, but had gotten lost. They were most likely looking for ghosts, so Jeff figured, who was he to disappoint them? He would give them a good scare, thereby teaching them not to sneak in again, and also lightening up his typically lonely and somewhat boring job. Quietly, he turned the brass handle so as not to alert them to his presence. Then he took a big breath and threw open the door with a loud scream. Inside the room were two women sitting at a table dressed in an old-fashioned nursing outfits, white coats, shoulder pads, a tight collar, and flat white hats. They didn't so much as flinch at the sudden intrusion, but rather smiled at him politely. See, one said to the other, I told you he would find us. It was quite clearly Jeff who had been frightened. He slammed the door shut and leaned, panting against the wall. Once he had mustered up his courage, he peered into the room again to look at the woman. He found the room empty. There was no place to hide, and the only way out was the door that Jeff was holding. It appeared that Jeff had failed to teach any trespassers a lesson, but his attempt to scare the women had sure been anything but the usual boring business of his job. While he had always felt rather lonely wandering the halls of Century Manor and the tunnels beneath it, he now realized that it was very unlikely that at any point he had actually been alone. That story came to us from the company called Ghost Walks, which you can find easily at ghostwalks.com. If you're in the area and want to check them out, they do tours in Hamilton, Toronto, and Niagara-on-the-Lake, with some specialty tours in Hermitage Ruins and Castle Kilbride coming up soon. Most of their tours start at 8.30pm, but not all of them, so be sure to check the calendar on their website for the route that interests you the most. 
Speaking of Niagara-on-the-Lake, though, there was another fantastic company there called Ghost Tours of Fort George. The next two stories are both from their archives and are written by their excellent storyteller Kyle Upton. I'll let the words of Kyle take you away through the mist and onto the grounds of Fort George. There are numerous antique stores throughout Niagara-on-the-Lake, and if you happen to be in the right place and at the right time, and know what to look for, it is possible to find some real treasures. Bill and Janet knew a great deal when they saw it, and they loaded up the gorgeous old rope spring bed frame into the back of the truck and took it home. Fitting it out with a box spring, it fit wonderfully into their newly redecorated master bedroom. But the next morning, Bill looked rather haggard. Just bad dreams, he said. One bad morning turned into a week of tossing and turning for Bill, while Janet slept like a baby. Slightly more than a week after purchasing the bed, Janet returned home to find it moved into the guest bedroom. I haven't been able to sleep at all. I keep having this nightmare of a man standing at the end of the bed glaring at me, and last night I don't think I was asleep when I saw him, said Bill. Not too long afterwards, when talking to other antique hunters, Janet and Bill heard the story of an old bed that was supposedly haunted by a jealous soldier. The soldier was not at all bothered by women in his bed, <laughs> but was very territorial and threatening when men invaded his bed space. This bed had been in one of the old houses in Niagara, but then had disappeared a couple of years past, and no one knew where it had gone. At least, no one but Janet and Bill. In preparation for a visit from Janet's father, who was an old World War II veteran from England, the family was given strict instructions not to mention anything to Grandad about the bed he would be sleeping in. The first morning of his visit, Grandad walked downstairs into the kitchen, sat down at the table, and asked, So, did you know you had a ghost? This story begins on the final tour of the first season of Ghost Tours at Fort George. As we came out of the barracks, a man asked me whether there were any ghost stories about children. I honestly replied that although I didn't know of any, it didn't mean that there weren't any. At the end of the tour, the gentleman again approached me, introducing himself and his wife. She explained that she was a psychic, having had this gift since she was very young, and that she had a new story for me. She claimed that while I was telling my stories in the barracks, she looked past me to see a small figure on the stairs. As she watched, a little girl, perhaps seven to nine years old, with shoulder-length curly blonde hair wearing a flowing white gown, padded barefoot down the stairs behind me. This little girl stopped halfway down the stairs, sat down, and appeared to listen to the tour for a time before coming the rest of the way down the stairs to stand just behind the guide near the bottom of the steps. When the tour was finished in the barracks, the child accompanied the group as it filed out of the building and continued to walk alongside the ghost tour, always staying close to the guide. As the tour passed by the officers' quarters, the little ghost could go no further, and was last seen disappearing into that building. The psychic claimed that the little girl had a crush upon the guide, as well as saying that she was friendly and enjoyed the tour. This woman also stated that there was another spirit in the officer's quarters who disapproves of the attention that the little girl pays to the tour, and it is she who prevents the girl from following any farther. The last bit of knowledge that this couple imparted before they headed back to their car was the name of the little ghost who followed the tour, Sarah Ann. As you might well imagine, this was all rather hard to believe. This was the first time that any of the ghost stories at Fort George actually involved me. This was also the first time anyone calling themselves a psychic had tried to tell me something had happened on the tour. No one else on the tour had seen any of this, and I was pretty certain that I would be the last person that anyone, living or dead, would take a fancy to. As well, there was a certain historical discrepancy that was present in this woman's story. Her description of the girl's hair. There were certainly little girls living in the barracks historically, and it is just as certain that little girls had died in the barracks. 
These would have been the children of soldiers, however, which would mean that their hair would either be long and tied back in a braid, or cut very short to prevent fleas, ticks, lice, and other vermin. A soldier's child in the early 1800s would not have worn her hair shoulder-length and curly. As the couple made their way back down the street toward town, I headed up to the fort to lock up for the last time that season. I may have rolled my eyes a little, too. Neat story, but boy do these psychics come up with some weird stuff. Fortunately, just because the ghost tour staff find it far-fetched does not mean that it isn't true. The following year, the evidence for Sarah Ann began to mount. When the school of psychics went through, two of their number claimed to see a little girl dressed in white, while two other psychics felt a childlike presence. They were of the opinion that the little girl's spirit was lost in this world, unable to move on to where she should be, and frightened and unhappy. They even attempted to open a portal to the next world so as to allow her to escape her suffering. On other tours, trios of women reported seeing a small, translucent white hand on the railing of the stairs, or reaching out to pat the guide gently on the head. As well, child-sized, white, amorphous shapes and high-pitched giggling have been reported within the barracks in the area of the staircase. In the 17 years since, Sarah Ann has become one of the most popular and most spotted spirits on the ghost tours at Fort George. If you enjoyed what you just heard, I encourage you to head on over to NiagaraGhosts.com to find information on the ghost tours of Fort George. They run ghost tours every Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday in July and August at 8.30pm, as well as Sunday tours in May, June, and September, though the September ones start at 7.30pm. If you're looking for a really creepy experience, they also offer Halloween tours throughout October that feature not only some rather dark tales, but also special access to a place usually off-limits on their summer tours. You'll need to book in advance for these ones, but you don't need to wait as tickets are already on sale by calling the Friends of Fort George gift shop. All of this is on NiagaraGhost.com and is definitely worth taking a look as soon as you can. The next set of stories includes three different tales, one from Kingston, one from Toronto, and one from Ottawa. But you won't be hearing my voice. We're in for a very special treat as storytellers from Ontario's The Haunted Walk Company are set to join us in a moment. I'd like to thank them very much for offering up their time to share their stories with us today, so wherever you are listening to this, give them a little round of applause as Glenn, Jillian, and Jim step up to the mic. Although, maybe if you're driving right now, hold off on the applause. We don't want to create any new ghosts. We have enough as it is. I'm Glenn Shackleton. I'm the founder of The Haunted Walk, and uh, we first started in Kingston in 1995. Uh, so Kingston certainly is the home of many of our favorite ghost stories. Probably my favorite story came from the 1970s when a woman and her son moved into a house near Queen's University. They noticed something strange even on the first day that they moved in. Everyone that was helping them noticed what they described as a cold patch in the stairway. When they passed through, they would feel just a chill in the air that couldn't be explained. Well, no one got too excited about this until a little bit later in the day, when a woman was leading the group with a large box in her hands, and when she passed through the cold patch, everyone distinctly heard a loud slap. She sunk to her knees, and she started shaking as if she was freezing to death. Now they brought her downstairs and calmed her down, and she said that when she walked up the stairway, she distinctly felt someone slap her across the face. There was a mark on her face to prove it, but no one could explain what had happened. There were other strange encounters in this house. The woman was an animal lover, and she would often leave bird seed out on the lawn and cat food on the porch for the neighborhood cats, but she noticed that no animals would ever approach her house, even though they would go to the neighbors. She also would sometimes wake up in the night 
with the distinct feeling of a cat's paws walking across her back. The trouble was she didn't own a cat. On one occasion, she was having a dinner party with a group of faculty from Queen's University and some friends. And afterwards, she and her son were cleaning up the, uh, the house. They noticed there was a trail of what appeared to be spilled wine leading to the bathroom in the upstairs hallway. And they started to clean it up, and I thought maybe somebody had been a little bit rude to leave such a mess, when they noticed that it wasn't wine at all, but was in fact a trail of blood. Even more alarming, when they cleaned up the trail, they noticed that it reappeared behind them right where they had cleaned it up. So they stayed at a friend's house that night. I, I really can't say I blame them on that count. I think the scariest encounter they had in the house was one night when the woman woke up with a terrible start. She knew that something was wrong in the house. She just didn't know what. Well, she got up and she went to her bedroom window. And normally she could see her friend and neighbor's house across the street. But on this night, all she could see were rows of giant white crosses blocking her vision across the street. Well, she thought she might be dreaming until she heard a scream from her son's room. And when she checked on her son, he said that he had woken up with the same feeling. But what he had seen out his window were rows of corpses piled up against the glass. At this point, they decided they'd had enough. They brought in someone to do an exorcism and even brought in a psychic to do what he called a spiritual house cleaning. But nothing worked and they were forced to move out of the house. To the best of our knowledge, the house continues to be occupied by students or staff of Queen's University to this day. Hello, my name is Jillian, and I am a tour guide with the Haunted Walk. I have a story to share about St. James Anglican Cathedral here in Toronto. This church stands at the corner of King and Church Street. It is a rather tall, imposing Gothic Revival style church, and it became a pretty busy place back in the 1830s. Waves of cholera were sweeping through the town and the surviving citizens were terrified. This disease was highly contagious, so they wanted bodies in the ground as quickly as possible to stop the spread. St. James did have a cemetery in the back, but it certainly was not big enough to hold all of the victims. So what they did instead was they dug a mass grave in the park area behind the church. The cemetery has since been removed, although not entirely. Many bodies still remain buried underneath today. Speaking of things that are underground, the city's first archbishop, John Strawn, is one of the bodies buried in the crypt underneath the church. The crypt is primarily used for sextons or caretakers of the church to walk from one end to the other. But we got to interview a sexton who worked there and she shared her experience with us. She said that often when she was down there she would catch the scent of perfume as though someone had just walked by. She was often followed around by the sound of footsteps and sometimes felt a presence brush past her. All of this led to her quickly exiting the crypt to get away from whatever presence that might be. The lights in the crypt also have a habit of turning themselves on and off. The lighting in the crypt has recently been redone so that different sections of the crypt have their own fuse. One Halloween, a group of choir members was brought down into the crypt and they were left alone for just a moment when suddenly all of the lights in the crypt shut off. The choir members screamed. The caretakers rushed back down to find out what had happened and it took them several minutes to get the lights in the crypt back on. The lights in the cathedral above remained on the whole time. On another occasion, after a service, three caretakers were closing up the church when suddenly 
they noticed a man standing in the center aisle of the church. Everyone else had gone home, so one of the caretakers spoke and said the man would have to leave. The church was closed. And the man turned and started to make his way towards the door. The caretakers followed. Before exiting, the stranger turned into the chapel in the east. And when the caretakers found themselves in the doorway, the room was empty. But there's only one way in and one way out. And they were standing in it. My name is Jim Dean, and I'm the creative director of The Haunted Walk, and I began my tour guiding career in Ottawa, and I'd like to share with you one of my favorite ghost stories from the city, which has to do with a hotel that has been in the national news recently due to plans for an addition to be added to the hotel, which the locals here are not too excited about, and that hotel is the Fairmont Chateau Laurier. The hotel was finished in 1912 and is easily one of Ottawa's most famous buildings. There have been several stories over the years which lead us to believe that the building is haunted. Guests have reported hearing and seeing many strange things. On several occasions, people have seen the image of a wealthy-looking gentleman dressed in old-fashioned clothing who slowly fades from view. When Patrick Watson, then chairman of the CBC, stayed at the hotel in the 1980s, he was awakened in the middle of the night when he heard a sound that resembled a pistol shot. Upon investigation, he discovered a heavy ashtray in his room had been cracked neatly in two. The second night, he was again awakened by the sound of his shaving kit hitting the bathroom floor. It had been on the counter, lodged behind the taps, but somehow flew from one end of the bathroom to the other he could find no explanation for either event. A tour operator brought his group to stay at the hotel a few years ago, and prior to his stay, he had known nothing of the strange encounters in the hotel, but left convinced that the place was haunted. One night, he returned to the hotel by the side door and decided to take the stairs up to his floor. He opened the door to the stairwell and immediately heard the sound of a man's rich baritone voice, singing an old-style song somewhere up above him. As he neared the floor he was staying on, the voice got closer and closer, until it was clear he would bump into the singer at the next turning of the stairs. Just as he turned onto the landing, the voice suddenly stopped. He had heard no footsteps on the marble stairs, nor sound of any doors closing, Immediately, he ran up and looked at the next and final floor just to be sure that there was no one there. It was only after his trip that he learned from the hotel that this type of thing had been reported before and in the very same stairwell. Another story came to us when we were contacted by a couple that had stayed at the chateau. The woman had several strange things happen to her, including the distinct feeling that someone had brushed up against her arm when no one else was in the room. The next night, she was removing her makeup in a large mirror when she watched in the reflection as the closet door behind her slowly swung open. Both she and her husband were somewhat frightened by these strange events, but by the following morning, she was absolutely convinced that her room was haunted. While having her shower, she distinctly felt someone touch her right shoulder blade. What makes all these especially strange 
is that some of these events have happened on the same floor of the hotel. It is also the very same floor where you can find the Charles Hayes Suite, which is named after the man who may well be the ghost in question. Charles Hayes was the president of the Grand Trunk Railway, and it was specifically because of Hayes' expansion plans that the Chateau Laurier was built. Just before the opening of the hotel, Hayes was in England, reporting to the head office about the financial situation of the railway. His expansion plans had been building up a lot of debt. For his return trip home to North America, he decided to accept a friend's offer to travel at a reduced rate on the maiden voyage of a brand new luxury steamship named the Titanic. And as you can probably imagine, Hayes did not make it back to Canada alive. He had been originally scheduled to lead the grand opening of the hotel, but in the end, it opened with little fanfare, little ceremony, on June 1st, 1912. Some feel that it may be the ghost of Charles Hayes who haunts the hotel, and that in the end, he may have returned to the scene of one of his greatest accomplishments. Strangely, just hours before the Titanic sank, Hayes was overheard telling a group of passengers that he felt the race to build faster and larger steamships would end in disaster at sea. If you're not already familiar with The Haunted Walk, grab your phone right now and go give them a like on Facebook and check out their website, hauntedwalk.com. They do tours in Kingston, Fort Henry, Upper Canada Village, Ottawa, the Carleton County Jail, the Mackenzie King Estate, Toronto, U of T, Black Creek Pioneer Village, and most terrifyingly, a retracing of steps at Black Creek's infamous halfway house. There is something for everyone with the haunted walk, and as you heard from the stories they just shared, they're experts in their field. If you're ever in Toronto, Kingston, or Ottawa, you'll simply need to set aside time to take at least one of their tours. Another way you can get your ghostly fill is by tuning into their podcast, The Haunted Talk, hosted by Jim Dean, one of our storytellers today. You can find the podcast on hauntedwalk.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I use Apple Podcasts to find them. That leads us very nicely to our final two stories, both of which you can learn more about by checking out The Haunted Talk and by picking up a copy of Terry Boyle's Haunted Ontario. They feature some rather famous Canadian figures, most notably a very popular painter from the turn of the century. Well, Tom Thompson came paddling past, I'm pretty sure it was him, and he spoke so softly in accordance with the growing of the dim. Any tragically hip fan will tell you that those are the opening lyrics to the song Three Pistols off the 1991 album Road Apples. Not every hip fan is going to know much about what a famous Canadian painter and influence on the group of seven is doing in the opening lyrics to the tune, though. Tom Thompson was born in Claremont, Ontario in 1877. He never took much to school, but he sure was drawn to the arts and to the natural world. He spent many a summer during the 1910s up in Algonquin Park at Canoe Lake, specifically at Mowat Lodge, where he was friends with the owners. Thompson was a born outdoorsman, particularly skilled at fishing and canoeing, and as such, got himself a park guide license and would take people out for fishing trips. When he wasn't escorting others through the park, Thompson would take his canoe, tent, and art supplies and venture out for days on end. He was as much at home at Canoe Lake as the trees themselves. One evening in July of 1917, Tom was at a gathering over at a friend's cabin when he got into a bit of a row. A German fellow by the name of Martin Blecha had been boasting about the war and how he anticipated a full success for the Germans. Thompson, who would have been out fighting in Europe if it wasn't for his flat feet, fired back at Blecha's remark. A fight almost broke out between the two before they were separated and calmed down. Those two had a mutual dislike for the other, but that never stood in the way of Thompson visiting Blecha's neck of the woods, for right next to him lived a lady by the name of Winnie Trainer. Winnie and Tom were sweethearts, you see. In fact, after her death in the 60s, Winnie's nephew found letters between herself and Thompson talking of marriage. So, you can see why when Blecher uttered, Don't get in my way if you know what's good for you, it's very unlikely that Thompson would have given it much consideration. 
Although it wasn't taken very seriously by Thompson, it certainly was an ominous threat, and those who heard it became even more suspicious when Thompson went out in a canoe the following day and did not return. For a full day, there was no sign of Tom Thompson. It wasn't unusual for him to venture off for days, but he always notified his friends before he did so. Martin Blecha was curiously heard to remark that he had seen an overturned canoe in the lake that day, but had not gone out to investigate it. When others went out to where Blecha had said he had spotted it, it had disappeared. Fortunately, a fellow named Charlie Scrim happened upon the canoe the following day. It was upside down with nothing in it save for the portage paddle lashed to the inside. This raised some eyebrows. This was definitely Thompson's canoe, but the working paddle was nowhere to be found. The one that was there was lashed to the inside in a very unprofessional manner, which was very unlike Thompson and his abilities. The search for the missing artist was on. They dynamited the lake, but no body surfaced. Search parties were sent out, but came back empty-handed. Things did not look very promising. One week after he disappeared, Tom Thompson's body was discovered floating in the water off Hayhurst Point. There was no water in his lungs to suggest he had drowned. There was a four-inch bruise on his left temple, and he showed signs of bleeding from his right ear. Despite all of this, the official cause of death was drowning. One thing that perplexed many was the fishing line wrapped 16 to 17 times around his left ankle. What on earth could that mean? It was then that a sinister theory was put forth. If Thompson had indeed been dead for over a week, and they had searched every corner of the lake, then it is likely he had been underwater. Why, then, did it take a full week for his body to rise up to the surface rather than the usual day or two for a corpse to come up? The fishing line around the ankle could be explained as a means of tying his body to a weight to sink it to the bottom of Canoe Lake, that it might never have been found. The Haunted Talk, the podcast of The Haunted Walk, whose director and host Jim Dean you've heard on this episode, covers theories behind Tom Thompson's suspicious death, burial, and alleged exhuming and reburial and original grave opening decades later to find someone else's skeleton in it. Well, there's a lot to unpack, I should say, and The Haunted Talk covers it very thoroughly, so instead of digging into that here... I'll recommend that you take a listen to that podcast for more information surrounding Thompson's death. I'd like you to recall those opening lyrics to Three Pistols, with Tom Thompson paddling past. What's that all about? Well, you see, there are many people who have claimed to see Thompson's ghost out on the waters of Canoe Lake ever since his disappearance. Lauren Harris, a great Canadian painter in his own right, and a member of the Group of Seven which Thompson heavily influenced, was out on Canoe Lake in 1931. He was returning to shore with his guide, and as their little craft slipped through the dark waters of the lake, Harris remarked how beautiful the world was around him. It was the golden hour of the evening, with orange light seeping into everything in sight, resulting in a gorgeous golden glow. It was in this picturesque landscape that Harris noticed a paddler about a hundred yards off. Harris gave a shout and waved at the fellow, but, as he did, the man in the canoe simply vanished. Thompson has been seen often in the past several decades, always paddling his canoe, and usually wearing a yellow shirt, although there is no confirmation of what color shirt he was wearing on the day of his death. Another such sighting was from, you'll be shocked to hear, another Canadian artist, Doug Dunford, in 1980. Dunford was down at his dock in the early morning mist when he heard the sounds of a paddle dipping into the still waters of the lake. He peered through the mist and saw the shape of a man in a canoe heading toward him. He began to make out the face of the canoeer who was looking straight back at Dunford, but then disappeared. Quickly, Dunford took a picture of the water where the canoeer had been, the ripples still extending out over the little waves. When he later had the film developed, he was floored to find that the photo yielded a remarkable result. There in the waters, which had been empty, was the very same canoeer. Dunford had caught Thompson's ghost on camera. He felt so inspired by this that he painted the photograph in lovely watercolors. The painting was later put up for sale and bought by another man who, Dunford learned, 
could not resist acquiring it, as he himself had also witnessed the phantom artist canoeing in the lake. One of the more unique finds up in Algonquin Park came from a little girl wandering through the trees. A splash of color caught her eye, and she pulled from a nook in the bark a small, rough painting, clearly very old. Was it a Thompson original work? It's indeed very possible. What a treasure to find in the forest for the young girl. It would not be the only echo of Thompson's presence in that park, though, as we know from the stories you just heard. It's been over a century since the artist passed away, and whether it was murder or accidental death, plenty of people have seen Tom Thompson come paddling past, or at least they're pretty sure it was him. is known for his paintings, the last story features a family that wasn't known for much good. In fact, it was their infamy that became their ultimate undoing. I would be remiss, however, if I didn't pause for some very important details before diving into Lucan Ontario's dirty little not-so-secret. First, I would like to acknowledge that these stories are not my own, nor are they collected by Discover the Past walking tours. The stories you heard today are from various websites and public forums, as well as from the following books. True Canadian Ghost Stories by John Robert Colombo, published in 2003 by Prospero Books, which you can find on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. Haunted Ontario, second edition by the late Terry Boyle, published in 2013 by Dundurn Press, which you can find on Amazon or dundurn.com. Unique to this episode has of course been our fantastic ghost tour companies that have so kindly shared their stories with us. They are Ghost Walks at ghostwalks.com, Ghost Tours of Fort George at niagaraghosts.com, and The Haunted Walk at hauntedwalk.com. I really do mean it when I say you should check out their websites or social media. They do a wonderful job and I thank them most sincerely. With this podcast, I hope to bring together people across Canada to share in scary stories, and working together with other companies like this really gets into the spirit of things. You should be able to find this podcast on discoverthepast.com under the Podcasts tab, and on the home site of ghoststoriesofcanada.podbean.com. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Apple Podcasts. It would be incredibly kind and very helpful of you to leave us a rating and review. The more reviews and the higher ratings we get, the more people we can reach with these stories. If you don't know what to say in the review, consider writing, I probably don't live in a house haunted by demons with Ouija boards built into its walls, but I certainly have nightmares about missing a single episode of this podcast. Or... Something like that. A special thanks, by the way, to Podbean user NRC8G3 for their kind words about the Quebec episode. The music for the podcast was written and recorded by yours truly. My name is Zach, and I am one of the guides for Discover the Past Ghostly Walks in Victoria, British Columbia. Our next episode will be released Monday, July 22nd, and will feature Manitoba. When beginning research for this series, I was drawn immediately to Manitoba's wealth of rich stories, and I found so many great tales, I'll be sad to omit some of them. The infamous Delta Marsh, some rather chilling murders, and a peculiar connection with the Titanic await us after the weekend. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head on over to discoverthepast.com. All throughout the summer, we run historical walking tours every day at 10.30 a.m. and 2 o'clock p.m., everything from Emily Carr-centered tours to guided walks through Canada's oldest Chinatown. Our specialty tours, however, are in the evening. Every night of the week, we run our ghostly walks. We have eight different routes, a different route at 7.30 p.m. for every night of the week, and then our classic route every night at 9.30 p.m. 
All our tours are 90 minutes long and start at 812 Wharf Street, outside the Visitor's Information Center. The only exception is our Chinatown History Walk, which starts at 1689 Government Street, outside the Starbucks. We would certainly love to see you out on one of our tours. Without further ado, I would like to introduce you to one of Canada's most notorious families, the Black Donnellys. Back in 1840-some, to Lucan, Ontario, a man did come. A man who pushed his weight around, and his wife Joanna could slap the devil down. You'll notice we're keeping with the song lyrics theme here, this time pulling words from the repertoire of good old Stomp and Tom Connors. Even with a little bit of exaggeration in the text, it's quite clear from the mention of Lucan, Ontario, that Stomp and Tom, in this song, is chronicling the story of the Black Donnellys. That 40-some would happen to be 1842, when James and Joanna Donnelly immigrated from Ireland. They settled near Lucan and built a shack away from the rest of town on the Roman line, and it was here that they raised their seven sons. Tom was right when he said James could push his weight around. On the 25th of June, 1857, James got into a fight with Pat Farrell at a logging bee. When the dust settled... Pat was dead on the floor, and James was a wanted man. He managed to hide from the law for several years, possibly by dressing up as a woman and confining himself to the Donnelly property. Eventually, though, they got their man, and James Donnelly served seven years in Kingston Penitentiary. When he returned home in 1871, he helped his sons finish a log cabin to add to their property. It was around this time that the grown-up Donnelly boys became infamous throughout the land for being bullies, proper, violent ones at that. Not only was the general public afraid of them, but the police were also hesitant to ever ruffle the feathers of a Donnelly brother. As anxiety heightened in 1879, Father John Connolly was brought in to investigate various crimes being committed throughout the parish in Lucan. There were barn burnings, animal mutilations, beatings and thefts, and there wasn't a single finger that wasn't pointing straight at the nearest Donnelly brother identifying him as the culprit. James Donnelly, the father, was very aware of his family's image in the community. When a property protective association was formed where members would search farms and homes to locate stolen or damaged belongings, James expressed an interest in joining. While it may have been a shrewd move to join and perhaps smooth over some of the tensions between his family and the Lucan parish, his son William pointed out that if James opened his doors for members to search the home, stolen goods would likely be placed on the property to frame them. James knew his son was right, and cancelled his intention to join the association. The PPA was getting mixed results in their endeavours to locate stolen property, but having no luck in successfully ridding themselves of the Donnelly brothers, their true ambition. Opportunity came a-knocking when Patrick Ryder's barn burned down. The association figured they could pin it on the Donnellys. They were persistent, too. When each of the Donnelly sons presented a watertight alibi as to their whereabouts on the night of the barn burning, the association turned their attention toward James and Joanna and accused them of arson. During the first trial, it was very quickly assured that no evidence against the Donnellys could be found. This was bad news for the parish. James could fire back with a very valid charge of wrongful arrest. Something had to be done before the second court date, set for February 4th, 1880. The night of February 3rd, then, would be the date to make their move. The original plan was to tie James and Joanna to trees and beat confessions out of them, but even the best laid plans can go awry. Thirty-five men, led by Constable James Carroll, grabbed clubs, pitchforks, guns, and torches, and set off in the darkness to surround the Donnelly household. Constable Carroll entered the house and informed James and Tom Donnelly that they were under arrest. Joanna sensed they would be up for a while, and went to stoke the kitchen fire to warm up the house for their guest. James asked under what charge he was being arrested, which was when Carroll gave the signal and the vigilantes, for that's what we may properly call them, 
flooded into the house. James was immediately clubbed down by the stove, followed by Joanna in the kitchen. Joanna's niece, Bridget, who was visiting, ran upstairs to her bedroom. Johnny O'Connor, a young boy who had been brought over to house it during the trial, hid under his bed. Tom ran outside, where he was stabbed to the ground with pitchforks. Even the dog was beaten and beheaded. Bridget was attacked, and her body dragged down from the loft while Tom was brought inside, his head split open with a spade. Before leaving, the men set the whole gory scene ablaze. Johnny O'Connor managed to escape the fire unharmed, luckily having gone unnoticed by the mob. Most of the vigilante group celebrated a job well done and made for Lucan to return home, but Carol and some of the more zealous members marched on toward William Donnelly's nearby home. They began to club and whip William's horse, hoping Will would hear the noise and venture into the barn where he could be ambushed, but no one in the house stirred. The mob had a plan B. They ran to the door, pounding on it and yelling fire. Inside the house, the four occupants glanced at each other, William and his wife, Nora, were accompanied by John Donnelly and a family friend, Martin. John answered the door. More than thirty holes were blasted in his chest. He was mortally wounded and bled out on the floor in a matter of minutes. Thinking they had gunned down William and not knowing any other brothers to be home, the vigilantes departed, content with a night's work. I've not gone into full gory detail about the killings or as in-depth into the problems in the community here because I want to focus more on the hauntings that took place after the fact, but like with Tom Thompson, if you want to hear a really thorough account, check out the episode on the Black Donnellys done by the Haunted Talk podcast. James Carroll and five of the men were charged with murder. With William, Nora, Martin, and Johnny O'Connor as witnesses, it should have been a very simple case. However, the final decision was to set all six men free of charges. Again, the Donnellys weren't very well liked in the area. In 1881, William, along with his brothers Patrick and Robert, rebuilt a home over the old foundations where the massacre took place. And that's the home that Linda and Robert Saltz moved into in 1988, 107 years later. Oh, in 1988, it had become a charming little location with a quaint old house, and the Salts moved in quite happily. It wasn't long before Linda began to feel uncharacteristically depressed, especially in the kitchen. Although the Salts were Protestants, they asked a Catholic priest to come perform an exorcism in the house, as they felt that whatever was in the house would respond better to that. The priest was hesitant to perform an exorcism, but was happy to bless the house. That seemed to do the trick, and Linda's depression lifted. That didn't solve all their problems, though. Robert would often hear footsteps creaking on the staircase, and occasionally a large, crashing sound which could never be explained. Now that Linda's depression was gone, it seemed that Robert had become the primary target in the house. Three times in the middle of the night, Robert heard his name being called from the depths of the house. If that wasn't enough, a few days later he was taking a shower and saw the shadow of a man appear on the other side of the curtain before moving away. Neither Linda nor their son admitted to having come into the bathroom while Robert was in the shower, and try as they might, they could not recreate the shadow Robert had seen. The family now knows the history of the home, and instead of moving out, have embraced the dark connections with the past even offering tours to anyone who booked in advance all the way up until Halloween of last year, when they decided to call it quits. During the long time period, where their doors were open, many people had rather uncomfortable encounters at the old Donnelly homestead. The barn is a location where people often feel like they're being watched, that's if they don't see one of the Donnelly brothers looking out through the windows first. Film crews have had impressive technological struggles on site, often finding nothing with battery power will stay charged. All throughout the property, one of the most frequent experiences is someone brushing up against you or touching you on your shoulder, no matter where you are. While the Salts seem to have been very happy to live on the old homestead, visitors were definitely often a little freaked out by what they encountered there. 
It's a shame many of us won't ever get to visit the Donnelly Homestead with our very own guided tour. Whether you're a fan of the paranormal or dark Canadian history, that property outside of Lucan is certainly a big attraction. Although the site no longer gives tours, I'm sure that doesn't mean the ghosts have gone into retirement. The Donnellys still hang around, up and down the old Roman line, until the end of time, as Stomp and Tom Connors would say.